0: Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. If you're stranded alone on a deserted island, what three things would you take with you? What are the three things that you thought were essential to live? Have a think, three things only on a stranded island that you thought were essential to live. Now, hands up if you chose very practical things like a knife or a box of matches or Wi-Fi. Hands up who's a practical person. Okay. Now, hands up if you chose a name. Hmm. Hands up if you chose someone. Someone. No hands. Well, great thinkers of, oh wait, one hand I think, last came in last minute. But great thinkers of the past had a significant and prized view of friendship. Great thinkers of the past thought friendship was essential for life. Friendship with God and friendship with others is the most essential thing in life. Augustine, the great theologian, said two things are essential in this world, life and friendship. Both must be prized highly and not undervalued. Others have also argued that friendship is not only essential in life, but it's our highest source of happiness, the supreme pleasure of life. The 18th century American pastor, Jonathan Edwards, also thought deeply about the most important realities in life and he wrote that friendship is the highest happiness of all moral agents. Over January, we are starting this year by diving into the book of Proverbs to learn about God's wisdom on friendship. Hugh Black, who was a Scottish-American theologian, he wrote a classic about friendship. His book is now considered a classic. And he said that the book of Proverbs might almost be called a treatise on friendship. He said there is no book, even in classical literature, which so exalts the idea of friendship and is so anxious to have it truly valued and carefully kept. The book of Proverbs praises and prizes friendship. The book of Proverbs, with the rest of the Bible, is where our church history and heritage had come to realise that friendship is an essential ingredient of the good life in God so today we have going f- moved far away beyond valuing and prizing friendship for many of us we can have the tendency to treat friends as more of a social luxury rather than a social necessity so what has happened to friendship that we must now make such efforts to recover its true value and significance? It may be that friendship, that word, is now broad and shallow than its original intent and meaning. In, on Facebook and in real life, most of what we call as friends is really little more than acquaintances. The difference between acquaintances and friendship is the difference between snorkeling and deep-sea diving, to make a summer metaphor. Snorkelling is skimming along the surface, and deep-sea diving is exploring the deep. With acquaintances, we often float on the surface of our conversations, shelling little more than the most general details of our lives. With friendship, we share the climate of our souls. We share the struggles with sin, we share our experiences of spiritual renewal. Authors have, on Friendship have identified four aspects of our modern culture which stops us from having deep friendships. The first is busyness. Our focus on work and family can very easily crowd out friendship from our lives. How we start to find the time for friends is for God to start to renew our minds, to see that friendship is just as important as work and family, to see that friendship is as essential to us as it is to, for air, to start to see that when we say that we're too busy with work and family for friends, it's the same as saying I'm too busy for air because I'm committed to water and food. The way we find time for friends starts with seeing friendship as crucial for human flourishing. The second is technology. Technology can be a great tool to help complement our pursuit for friendships, but they can't fully replace it. When we rely on technology too much, we end up trading deep communion for digital communication. We trade deep communion for digital communication. We trade up conversations and shared experiences We trade that up for statuses and updates. We made connecting with people right around you, we trade that up with connecting with people who we don't really know on the other side of the world. We trade a person's real presence and we trade that for emojis. We trade personal ways for addressing issues and we trade that up for long email chains with keyboard warriors. One helpful advice on the issue of social media that I heard on a podcast is that social media is a good as a first stop, but it should never be the last stop in a relationship. That is social media, digital communication is a good starting point to facilitate, coordinate the ends and goals of deep communion face to face. But social media, digital communication can never facilitate deep communion on its own. It's a good starting point, but in our relationships, it should never be the last stop. The third is mobility. Globalization has encouraged many to move interstate and overseas for study, career, and lifestyle. It's opened up great opportunities. But the downside is that mobility has made it hard a true friendship to take root because it takes time for friendships to take root and go down deep and it can discourage to make any effort to make new friends we can fall into the mindset well why bother why bother investing in new friendships when very soon they get pulled up again and so by not actually going deep in relationship it actually makes it easier for us to transplant with the next move. So the first three of these are external pressures that we face in modern life. The fourth is our eternal propensity, and that is sin. Sin is selfish. Sin is antisocial. Sin has been described as curving inward on ourselves. Sin drives us inwards, and therefore it drives us to isolation. And our Western culture of hyper-individualism fuels our sinful nature, and so because of these four factors, we experience a fewer and fewer deeper friendships, and it's actually destroying our lives, and it's fracturing our societies. The former US surgeon, General Vikev Murphy, said that when he saw patients, the most common illness was not cancer or heart disease, but loneliness. Loneliness is a hazardous to our health and is increasing so with age. He says, loneliness poses a particular threat to the very old, quickening the rate at which their faculties decline and cutting their lives shorter. The UK has now appointed a minister for loneliness, a minister of loneliness, to address the growing problem of social isolation. Rent-a-friend companies, first popular in Japan, are now booming in other countries. Many people across the globe, not just Japan, are now paying for a companion to keep them company. Why? Because as a whole, societies, we have failed to forge deep friendships. We failed to see that friendship is essential for the good life. And so where do we get this vision of friendship as essential for the good life, essential for human flourishing? We actually find it in the very first pages of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We see that the world created before sin entered the world. We see creation and humanity before sin entered the world. And all the way through, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God saying, It is good. It is good. It is good. Every part of creation before sin and evil entered the world is good then suddenly we get the one thing before sin comes into the world which is not good. This is an interesting thing, and it's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Suddenly, we get the one thing before sin comes into the world which is not good. One thing God said is not good is that Adam is alone. And this is hugely significant. You see, the first problem in human history, the first problem on the pages of Scripture, is actually not sin. It was solitude. The first human ache was loneliness. The ache of friends is the one ache that is not the result of sin. Every other ache, every other longing Adam ever had, that human beings ever had, the hunger ache, the sickness ache, the guilt ache, the lack of meaning ache, they all come from sin. But we read in Genesis 2, Adam was made perfect. He was untouched by sin at that time, yet there was still something missing. He could not fully enjoy paradise without friends. God made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy our joy without human friends. We are made this way because we are made image bearers of God, who he in himself is eternal friendship between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so if we are made in his image, we are inescapable communal and social people. We are made for friendship because we bear the image of God. So on the sixth day, God made Adam and he made Eve, the first friendship. And you'll notice that God declared it to be very good. So if you go back to Genesis 1 verse 31, it says, God saw all that he made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Everything was good, but everything was very good when friendship entered the world. And so therefore, God created friendship to be the highest good in the good life of God. Friendship is the pinnacle of creation, our highest pleasure, our highest happiness in life. This shows us a world without friends is not very good. Now, at this point, you might be asking, hey, isn't the Genesis story about Adam and Eve, about marriage not friendship? Because you always hear about the Adam and Eve story when you go to a Christian wedding. And the joke that we often get is Adam needed Eve and not a Steve to procreate and multiply. Well, the answer when we look at Genesis 2 more carefully is that the story in Adam and Eve is a story of first friendship and then marriage. In fact, it's a story about the first friendship in marriage. And so there has been a misreading of Genesis 2 that I've been taught, and perhaps you have been too, and it starts with Paul's instruction on sexual temptation in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. So maybe, like me, you've, taught, you've been learnt about not sleeping with your girlfriend, and your youth group leader shows you 1 Corinthians 7, verse 9, it says, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Other translation is to say, uh, better to marry than to burn with lust. And this verse gets read back into the Adam and Eve story. And they say that the problem with Adam being alone would be that he would struggle with lust, he would be sexually deprived, he was sexually lacking. But as I point out, the problem of Adam's loneliness was before the fall, before sin entered the world. So lust, sexual immorality, came after the fall. So Adam couldn't have struggled with lust. Adam was not sexually deprived or lacking. Adam was relationally deprived and relationally lacking. The first human need of Adam was companionship, friendship not romance and sexual intimacy what you'll find is that romance and sexual intimacy grows out of friendship and once we see the priority and significance of friendship in the story of Adam and Eve that would actually change the way that you'll understand marriage and the creation mandate in the Bible you'll start to see that Eve was Adam's wife yes But Eve was also Adam's friend. You'll begin to see that the Bible shows that marriages are ideally the deepest of friendships. And it's actually affirmed in the rest of Scripture. It's affirmed in Song of Songs, which is the most sensual book in the Bible on marriage, where the bride in the Song of Solomon declares, this is my beloved, this is my lover, and this is my friend. Do you see that? The most passionate, sensual book of the Bible declares a spouse as my beloved, my lover, but this is my friend. And so with a clearer lens of friendship, you'll begin to see that Adam and Eve's mandate to multiply and fill the earth is to create a world of friendship, where there will be many people to be each other's friends and companions. God's vision of the world is not just that there will be many healthy families but his vision is also a world where there would be no one who will be alone. A world where there would be no one who is friendless. And so I think we've been misreading the Genesis story of Adam and Eve because of our over-romanticised and over sexualized culture, which so often elevates sexual relationships over friendships. And so with a clear biblical picture an understanding of the very goodness of friendship, I thought about the three implications of how this can practically play out in our lives. Firstly, to need and want deep friendship is not a sign of immaturity, but maturity. If you're here and you're longing and needing deep friendship, Know that it is not a sign of immaturity, but a sign of maturity. Wanting friendship is not a sign of spiritual weakness. It is a sign of spiritual health. Tim Keller said, The less you want friends, the less like God you are. Christian spirituality is that the less you want friends, the less like God you are. And so the wonderful picture of Christian spirituality is less like a solo pilgrimage. It's less like self-meditation in the furthest mountains. But Christian spirituality looks more like sharing a meal with friends with laughter and love. Sharing a meal with friends with laughter and love is more spiritual because we reflect more of God's image when we are with friends in the pursuit of Christ over them when we are by ourselves in the pursuit of perhaps enlightenment. Secondly, marriage is friendship garnished with romance. Our romanticized and sexualized culture treats marriage as romance garnished with friendship. Our culture treats marriage as romance and sexual attraction and friendship is this wonderful little option if you can get it. But biblical marriage is essentially friendship with romance garnishing, flavoring it. So if you're going to marry someone this year, you should marry someone who's now or has the potential to be your very best friend. In other words, your spouse should be a friend with benefits. That's who you should marry a friend where you can have benefits in marriage. Friendship is a deep oneness that comes from two people journeying towards a common horizon. For Christians, that horizon is the glorious Christ. And in the glory of the resurrection life, the only thing that will continue on is friendship in Christ. Marriage and sex is temporary. Matthew 2 verse 30 says that at the resurrection, people will neither marry or be given to marriage. Marriage and sex only has a temporary purpose in God's plan of salvation, but so friendship with God and friendship with one another will last forever. Thirdly, for the parents who are thinking about how to raise children, who are playing a role in fulfilling the creation mandate to multiply and fill the world. We see that the Genesis vision for friendship compels us to disciple our children, not only to be good and faithful believers of Jesus, not only to be good and faithful children unto parents, but also to be good and faithful friends. Our children are to grow up having the maturity to make and maintain good friendships throughout their life. And so one day when you do get your child's report card, and you get their grades for all their subjects, and usually at the end you'll get a few comments that are not formally accessed about how your child gets along with others how your child helps others, how your child cares for their friends. Well, Genesis encourages us to value those comments just as much as their grades, if not, value more than their grades because the wisdom in the book of Proverbs tells us that the significant part of how we are to be successful in life, in living the good life that God has designed, is choosing and keeping good friends. The book of Proverbs tells us that having the EQ to, have, to be a good friend, to have good friends, is more critical to flourishing in life than IQ. So how do we start to teach our children about friendship? It starts by modelling it to them. Just as children learn about healthy marriage by parents modelling a healthy marriage, the same with modelling friendship. Our children can learn as parents demonstrate actions Rhythms, routines, behaviours, and sacrifices to foster friendships in their lives. And we can learn to put friendship into practice through the book of Proverbs. So, finally we get to the proverb. And the one proverb that we're going to look at today is Proverbs 24. One who has unreliable friends soon come to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The proverb tells us that a true friend sticks and stays with you. In the ancient world, family bonds were very important. The family circle was a tight knit circle. Yet this proverb says that that friend can break inside that family circle and move even closer. The Hebrew word translated to stick is also translated as to cleave. And it's the same word in Genesis describing marriage as a man leaving his mother and father to unite, to cleave, to stick to his wife. Do you see Proverbs is picking up the Genesis language to suggest that there is a deep oneness at the core of friendship. Again, it is reinforcing at the core of marriage, the deep oneness is the oneness of friendship. It's suggesting that true friendship is covenantal, a commitment out of love. And so a modern translation of the proverb could be something like, a person with many Facebook friends will ruin themselves, but a true friend can come closer and be committed in love than a brother. In other words, you will do well if you have a few close and committed friends, friends who will stick with you and stay with you over than having many companions and acquaintances. So to foster close commitment in our friendship, it will involve doing three things. First, it's being selective. This might sound a bit cold, calculating, but the reality is that we simply cannot invest the same amount of time and attention in every relationship that we have. Some of us will have no difficulty knowing who our closest friends are, but others will need to make a deliberate decision to prioritise certain friendships. And that doesn't mean excluding or ignoring others, but involves doing all that we can to ensure that we are sharing life at a deeper level with some. The second is being open. If you want greater closeness and intimacy with others, we'll have to be prepared to be open with them. That might involve sharing your hopes, your past, your fears, your passions, your temptations, and your weaknesses. We have to take that risk of being open to our trusted friends. And most of the time, your friends will appreciate and will reciprocate and your friendship will deepen. Thirdly is being deliberate. Close friendships doesn't occur by accident, but requires time, effort, thoughtfulness and initiative. So rather than waiting for others to take the initiative, you can do it yourself, which requires making a regular commitment rather than waiting for a moment when you're both free, which may never happen. And when we consider this proverb and what it takes to practically make it happen, to be selective, to be open, to be deliberate, we realise actually how much of a terrible friend we are. Because to be a close friend to someone that makes them feel like that they are closer to you than any other family member, that's really hard. So where do we get the power to be close and committed friends? The answer is Jesus. Even when we are terrible friends to God, Jesus committed himself to be a close and committed friend to us. Jesus says this in John fifteen fifteen. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my Father I have made known to you. Jesus selects us to be his friends. Jesus is open to us and he lets us in. He calls us friends, not servants, because a servant does not know the master's business, but a friend does. Because he deliberately makes all that he has learnt from his Father known to us. See, God the Father, he's been doing friendship for a very long time. He's been doing friendship for all of eternity with the Son and the Holy Spirit. And now Jesus makes that knowledge and wisdom of friendship known to us. Not by selling us a course to buy or to earn but he shares that knowledge of friendship freely to us because Jesus has made us to be his friends. Only when we find friendship with Jesus, who cleaves and sticks to us at the cost of his life, only when we embrace Jesus with his arms nailed open for you, how much more open do you want him to be open Only when we are loved by his deliberate sacrifice to let you into the closest inner friendship, into the circle of the triune God, only when you know Jesus as that kind of friend will you have the power to be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. What an amazing friend we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for granting to us the radical cosmic act of friendship Jesus Christ gave to us on the cross when he led us all the way into God and showed us that he will never let us down. He so radically befriended us so that we can be friends we need to be. Help us to be friends with all sorts of people, but within the Christian faith there is a tremendous potential to be friends with people who share in living and journeying towards the same horizon, the glory of your Son. We ask that you would remake our friendships into your image, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us to be truly what you made us to be, friends walking together with you and with one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.